if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Bob Fratz Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two underway, not 10 minutes past 10 o'clock. Thank you for being with us. Thanks again to Sergeant Dimitri Penny. Terrific stuff from him uh, in analyzing the uh, tragedy unfolding in Louisville, Kentucky, and really across the country in the aftermath of the Breonna Taylor grand jury announcement yesterday. It is a Thursday, the 24th morning of the month of September in the year of our Lord 2020. And as it is Thursday, that means it is Piper time. Dr. Everett Piper joins us once again, a past university president, a radio host in his native Oklahoma. He's a columnist for the Washington Times, and he is a best-selling author. Dr. Piper, good to have you back. How are you? You know, Piper time. I, I thought you were going to do the MC Hammer song there for a minute. It's Hammer time. <laughs> no, if I ever did, I'd probably bring you on to um, to the uh, bagpipes uh, and the uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Rowdy Roddy Piper <laughs> intro to the old uh, old wrestling. Uh, that would be, in fact, oh, I love it. Andrew, take a note, please. Get me, get me the Roddy Roddy Piper intro for Doctor Piper from now on. Uh, all right, Doctor, I'm gl- I'm glad we can have a moment have a moment of levity because we have a lot of serious stuff that we have to discuss here. Uh, I want to start. Um, usually, we start with your column from the previous week and or weekend, but um, I want to start with just your reaction to two things. Um, you can take them in either order. Number one, the grand jury decision in the Breonna Taylor case that has set America's cities on fire anew last night. And then secondly, would be those fires. Um, It it appears that the new normal, you know, we talk talk about a new normal in in terms of our lifestyle because of the pandemic. Apparently, the new normal is if we don't like something that happens in the news cycle, if we don't like a grand jury decision, if we don't like the verdict in a case, if we don't like something that a politician does or says, we don't just complain anymore. Now we set fires. Now we smash windows. Now we assault and attack people. And last night in Louisville, we shoot police officers. Um, Take that in either order you wish. Well, I listened to a little bit of the end of your previous segment, and you mentioned facts and feelings. The law and the enforcement of the law has to be based on facts. It cannot be grounded in feelings. There's a reason that Lady Justice is blind, and that's because she can't lift the blindfold up and peek around to make her decisions based on the color of people's skin, their socioeconomic status, or whether or not she likes them or doesn't like them. Lady Justice has to make decisions based on facts. 
the feelings be damned when it comes to establishing law and enforcing law. And if any society ever digresses into feelings as a method to um, pursuing law, establishing it or enforcing it, that society is guilty of ideological fascism. That society is guilty of um, enforcing its ideology on the populace rather than enforcing a blind justice, which is necessary. Martin Luther King said, we need to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And that was his way of saying that justice has to be blind. It can't look around and make decisions subjectively based on the way people look, or whether or not you're in the in-group or out of the in-group. And what we saw the attorney general in Kentucky doing is enforcing law. What we saw the grand jury doing is enforcing law. And what we see in the riots is we don't like the decision. Our feelings tell us that you need to be condemned. We don't care about the facts. We don't care about the facts that Breonna Taylor's boyfriend was a criminal. We don't care about the fact that he was being pursued for distributing fentanyl and cocaine. We don't care about the fact that when the police entered into the department and they did announce themselves as police, that they were fired upon in a dark hallway and they returned fire. All of those facts be damned. We just don't like the decision because of our feelings. And if we ever, I'll repeat myself, if we ever digress, which we are, into making decisions on law because of our feelings, we're now at a point of ideological fascism. You must look like us, talk like us, walk like us, and make decisions like us, or you be damned. And that's what you see in BLM and the riots in the street. You know, it's such a good point that you make, um, particularly about, you know, as they walked into that home or entered into that home and broke the door and uh, and were fired upon. It's sad enough that in in 2020, Policing in America ha- seems to have been uh, changed, and the rules seem to be do not fire until fired upon. If you fire preemptively, for example, in Kenosha, in the Jacob Blake case, uh, the officer behind him was not going to wait to see what he came out of the car with when he reached down into the car in full defiance of every police officer's order. They're not going to wait until he turns around to see if he's got a Glock or to see if he's got a, a flower. Um, if you're told not to reach, you know, you're going to get fired upon. And they did. Well, that has changed to you can't fire until you are fired upon. And in this case, they were and they still aren't happy that the police yeah. returned fire because, unfortunately, the person that fired the gun at the cops didn't get hit. And Breonna Taylor did. But the fact is, the police still have to be allowed to defend themselves. Absolutely. There's a conservative black man out there. I don't know if you've covered him or not. His name is Virgil Walker. He's a pastor and he's outstanding. He speaks primarily to Christian apologetics, but he also has engaged in a lot of this discussion. Virgil Walker, and he recently posted something akin to this. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm pretty darn close to a quote. He posted on Facebook, I will never be shot by police. I will never be arrested unfairly by police. I will never, I will never, I will never suffer violence from the police. And the reason for that is I don't commit crimes in the first place, and if I ever am stopped and questioned, I comply with what the police tell me to do. That was Walker's way of saying there's an explanation for all of this stuff. Number one, almost all of these people were engaged in criminal activity, criminal activity either at the time or they had been guilty of repeated criminal activity prior to the arrest. All of these people 
refused to comply with the directives of the police, the situation you just described. Virgil Walker will not suffer any of this because when the police tell him to stop, he stops. You and I will not suffer any of this because when they tell us to not reach in our car, we don't reach in our car. And one more thing. My mom always told me, you're known by the company you keep. Brianna Taylor, and I, this, this one's going to get some people mad, but Brianna Taylor kept bad company. And why aren't we instructing our children, whether we're black or white, like my mom instructed me? You're known by the company you keep. And if you're keeping bad company, you're going to suffer bad consequences. Well, and in, and in this case, you're right. It riles a lot of people because she's dead, and uh, you know you don't want to turn this into trashing the dead. But in this case, it is important to know. She did more than just keep bad company. She participated in bad things. She bailed out Jamarcus Glover two different times when he was arrested for his drug operations. She allowed him to keep thousands of dollars, apparently, at her home, which is uh, evidenced by the jailhouse phone calls that he made after her death with another woman. Uh, and he asked how much of her mo- his money was at her home. Uh, and this is the reason why Brianna Taylor's apartment and car were listed on the search warrant because the police knew about her activities with Jamarcus Glover. So she wasn't just keeping bad company. She was participating in his bad activities, and that's why she her, her home was targeted in the first place. So uh, people need to understand this was not just some innocent person who, um, you know, working a good life you know, as an EMT, who was sleeping in her bed, who was shot in cold blood without doing anything wrong, et cetera, et cetera. The story the media told for the last six months was not an accurate one. Um, Dr. Piper, speaking of inaccuracies, I want to talk about critical race theory. I want to talk about the 1619 Project, and I want to talk which, about what you wrote about next, which is the 1776 Commission that the president is commissioning and has liberals going crazy over. I want you to talk on that when we come right back on AM 1420, The Answer. That is exactly what I'm talking about. It is time for the not-so-rowdy Dr. Everett Piper on AM 1420, The Answer. Dr. Piper, uh, we work fast around here. <laughs> I love it. I love I it. I do, too. I do, too. It's perfect. All right, uh, Dr. Piper, uh, I want to get into this now. <clears throat> Much has been said and discussed about the 1619 Project, which is the fictional work of the New York Times trying to rewrite American history, saying that this country was not founded in 1776, but it was founded in 1619 when the first African slaves hit the shores in North America. Um, even the even the founder or the lead author, if you will, of the 1619 Project has admitted that this uh, entire thing is, is not historical. It is not history. She said it is how we remember it or we wish to remember it. Um, but nonetheless, it's being taught in schools. President Trump, in uh, a, an address on September 17th, said, yeah, not anymore. He wants education in schools, particularly about American history, to be about real American history, saying, quote, our youth should be taught to love America with all of their heart and their soul. We must save this cherished inheritance for our children, for their children, and for every generation to come. He condemned the 1619 Project by creating the 1776 Commission. And you wrote about that last week. Tell us more. All right. So if there's a common theme here. 
because Nicole Hannah-Jones, the woman you just quoted, the author of the 1619 Project, has admitted that the project is based, the 1619 narrative is based on the way they wish to remember it, rather than the way it actually is or was. In other words, feelings versus facts. This is a direct parallel, a common thread to the Breonna Taylor case. Culture is digressing to a social construct rather than an objective reality. A social construct. We deconstruct everything that's real, whether it's male or female, whether it's history, whether it's climate science, or whether it's law. We deconstruct it, and then we reconstruct it in an image to our liking, based on our politics, our feelings, our passions, our proclivities. That is a recipe for chaos. And the 1619 Project, which I believe is even being adopted in school systems in your state, Ohio, Bob, is a project that is predicated on political feelings rather than scientific facts, historical reality, the empirical facts of what really happened. Trump comes out last week and announces the 1776 Commission, which is a commission that is encouraging students, excuse me, teachers and principals, public schools, to teach the facts of U.S. history. How outrageous. How outrageous. Hannah Nicole, excuse me, Nicole Hannah-Jones, among others, went out and they went nuts. They went crazy immediately. She actually said, the efforts of the President of the United States to use his powers to dictate what schools can, can or cannot teach should be deeply alarming. Well, I thought these people were pro-science. I thought, thought they were pro-empirical facts. Well, why not teach the science, if you will, of history? And then when you see what, uh, when you listen to some of the quotes that President Trump had in his speech and the things that they're outraged over, here are some of his quotes. Encourage our educators to teach our children about the miracle of American history. Oh, how outrageous. How yes. shameful for the president to say that. Um, or he, he suggested this. Like you said, our youth, youth should be taught to love America with all their heart and with all their soul, and that we must save this cherished inheritance for our children, for their children, and every generation to come. Or when he said that he believed that the commission should teach, encourage people to embrace the vision of Martin Luther King, where children are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Again, how outrageous, how crazy is the United States president to encourage our schools to teach that. Here's another one. We are here today to declare that we will never submit to tyranny. We will reclaim our history and our country for citizens of every race, every color, every religion, and every creed. How terrible. This is the kind of stuff the president said, and the left's reaction was crazy. They lost their mind condemning him for these quotes and for suggesting that history is a fact, it's not just a constructed feeling. Dr. Piper, very well argued, by the way, and presented. Um, I want to just pivot here in the last three minutes to critical race theory, because what you're describing now and what President Trump is talking about is teaching our kids from K through 12 real American history, teaching them the facts about 1776. And yes, we do cover the dark stain of slavery in our country's history, but we talk about the miracle of 1776 and creating a country that would lay the groundwork to create equality and freedom for all. But let's move up to the next level now. We are a Judeo-Christian nation. 
critical race theory is being taught in Christian colleges and universities. Now, we don't have enough time to explain all of what critical race theory is, but I am just stunned and, and I guess, disgusted. We, I might expect this from the public universities, not necessarily from the Christian universities. Can you tell us about that? Okay, I know we've got limited time. Um, people need to Google Claudia Kolmakoff, K-A-L-M-A-K-O-V, Kolmakoff. She just posted an excellent, an excellent podcast blog, blog where she is exposing the critical race theory and the intersectionality that is being taught in Christian colleges and universities across the land. I know this for a fact. Um, Biola, I'm going to mention names. People, Biola University is laden with critical race theory. Azusa Pacific University is heavily steeped in critical race theory. They're hiring faculty and provosts to make sure that this is taught in their schools. When colleges and universities across the land started naming scholarships in honor of George Floyd, the man is a porn, was a porn star. The man was a felon on multiple levels, and Christian colleges are naming scholarships in his honor. Why not name a scholarship in honor of somebody of dignity and character like Booker T. Washington or Frederick Douglass or a living black conservative like Larry Elder or Candace Owens? I don't care, or Star Parker. But no, you go out as a Christian college and you elevate and you extol to sainthood George Floyd? What are you doing? Christian colleges, and I'm telling everybody listening right now, 99% of them are heavily steeped, immersed, and they're in it up to their eyeballs in terms of critical race theory, intersectionality, social justice, and liberation theology. Do not pay to send your kids to these colleges. I'm going to repeat a quote I've used on your show before. A wolf in sheep's clothing is dangerous, but a wolf in shepherd's clothing is downright deadly. Christian colleges that are steeped in critical race theory are wolves in shepherd's clothing. They will eat your kids alive. You, you'd be better off sending your kid to a secular institution where at least you know the wolves are wolves and they've exposed right. the fangs. Rather than sending That's them to the a That's the worst part about it. You expect to be eaten up in those. No, I know. I just wanted to, to, to you know, uh, underscore that you expect to be eaten up at those, you know, public universities, those secular colleges. You send your kid to a usually more expensive Christian college because you don't want them to have to endure that. You want them to be taught appropriately, accurately, historically, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and 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 you know, with with fairness and equality rather than you know the kind of stuff you'll get. And if you have to pay more money than you would for the state schools to put your kid in a Christian school, and then they're doing it, and worse, um, you know, you're 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 the ultimate fool. Uh, and 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 my goal here is not to insult, but to advise people: look very closely at what your kids are going to be taught before you choose their university, Christian or otherwise, because um, it's going to shape the way they, they they view the world for the rest of their lives. Uh, Doctor Everett Piper, always a pleasure. Thank you for the great commentary. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, blessings. Bye bye. Thank thank you, Doctor. Ten thirty one. We're going to get news, then we're going to come back, and we're going to get back to the Supreme Court and fight over the vacancy created by the untimely death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ilya Shapiro is going to join us next, AM 1420, The Answer. Bob France, here on AM 1420, The Answer. Onward now at 1037. Thank you for being a part of the program on AM 1420, The Answer. 
Thanks again to Dr. Everett Piper. Terrific stuff uh, the whole way through. Uh, a lot of very important information to get to, uh, you know, to dig a little deeper on. But we're going to pivot now to the Supreme Court nomination and the legal fight, or at least the Senate fight over the replacement to be named probably Saturday for the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mitch McConnell laid into Chuck Schumer yesterday. As we await the hurricane of misrepresentations and bad faith attacks that seem almost guaranteed to pour out, we need to understand in very clear terms why our colleague from New York is uniquely, uniquely non-credible messenger when it comes to the Senate's role in judicial confirmations. A uniquely non-credible messenger. That's what Mitch McConnell called Chuck Schumer. It was outstanding. I don't need to hear any more, but that was outstanding. Uh, Joining us now to talk about this uh, very important uh, seat and the ramifications of filling it is uh, perhaps one of the most uh, esteemed uh, individuals in the country in this area. Ilya Shapiro is... um, the uh, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review and is the author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. So like I said, probably nobody more qualified to address this than Ilya Shapiro, who joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks very much for the time, Ilya. How are you? I'm doing well. I don't think I've ever been called one of the most esteemed people in the country. I'll take it. Yeah, well, and, and when it comes to the Supreme Court, I mean, your work, I think, speaks for itself. Uh, you are widely recognized and certainly very well respected uh, by me as well. And, and that's why, uh, let, me, let me dive into this, Ilya, with, uh, with Mitch McConnell yesterday. Obviously, I don't, I don't want to cut into your time and play everything he said about uh, Chuck Schumer, but he pointed out what was done under Chuck Schumer's leadership or even when Chuck Schumer was just a senator and was supportive of the original verb of trying to stop a Supreme Court nominee who was obviously qualified but not liked for his ideology, Borking, Robert Bork. Uh, everything that has happened with respect to the filibuster, all of this goes back to Chuck Schumer, and yet he is the one telling Mitch McConnell that he is being uh, uh, hypocritical and is, and is committing essentially a crime by fulfilling his const- constitutional obligation to have hearings over a, a nominee in an election year. What is your response to what Mitch McConnell did yesterday? Um, well, look, uh, uh, politicians being hypocritical or flip-flopping and flipping is, is of course, nothing uh, nothing unusual. With Schumer in particular, he, he joined the filib- attempted filibuster of Sam Alito. He uh, reinforced uh, what we call the, the Biden rule. Um, in, in 2007, he said that President Bush should not uh, appoint uh, any more uh, Supreme Court nominees if, if there's a vacancy. Um, in uh, in 2016, four years ago, he reversed that. Now he's reversed that uh, again. Which uh, again, you can talk about hypocrisy or flip flopping or what have you. That's that's par for the course. But both Schumer and and Biden, for that matter, who has an even longer record. Biden was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee uh, for the Bork hearings, for the Thomas hearings. Uh, and has been a, a, a sharp elbowed and, and divisive brawler uh, on this issue. So this is this is all pure power politics. Nobody is uh, is speaking here with with clean hands. It's ultimately a debate over uh, the direction of the Supreme Court and what kind of judges we want. Well, let me let, let me just challenge that slightly. When you say nobody has clean hands, I, I think if anybody is close to having them, it is Mitch McConnell. And I didn't feel that way in the beginning until we did a little digging and some other people did. The Wall Street Journal ran a great piece on this that 19 times there have been 
Same uh, party um, uh, leadership in terms of the White House and in the Senate control, the majority control of the Senate, that um, uh, Supreme Court vacancies have happened in an election year. And 17 times those uh, nominees were indeed confirmed. History is on the side of Mitch McConnell doing what he's doing here. This isn't quite as hypocritical as the left wants to make it appear, because, of course, four years ago it was divided power. Oh, that, that, that's absolutely right. And, and the idea that um, divided government versus united is, is the key statistic. I mean, even without the election year staff, which, which you quoted correctly, um, overall, uh, if, if the Senate is controlled by the same party as the uh, White House, there's about a 90% confirmation rate. And if it's different parties, then it's less than 60%. So, um, you know, whether you have the votes is the key determinant. This is all about politics. Uh, and, and, and the other, I guess, difference uh, now versus four years ago is that uh, in 2012, President Obama had been reelected, and in 2014, uh, the Republicans took the Senate, and so 2016 was essentially uh, a rubber match for that, whereas now in 2016, Trump won, and in 2018, uh, the Republicans increased uh, their majority in the Senate, and so there's it's not really a tiebreaker situation, uh, if you will. So you, you can... You can uh, uh, totally make that argument either out of history or, or from these other uh, positions. It's, it's a matter of politics all the way down. You know, it is a matter of politics. We're talking to Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute. Um, are you surprised that Joe Manchin has come out as strongly in favor of this? Uh, he has said not only is he in favor of having the confirmation hearings, and if somebody is is uh, uh, qualified, uh, he will consider voting for that individual, but he also said that the retaliation promised by his own party of packing the court, of, of eliminating uh, the, the electoral, destroying the, abolishing the electoral college, however you want to phrase that, that all of these threats are, are nonsense, uh, and, and it's it's, it's embarrassing and it's unbecoming of one of the two major political parties here. And then also, uh, Ilya, Mitt Romney, a noted Trump hater, said he will go along with this and at least give the hearing. Uh, Lisa Murkowski flipped on this, originally saying we should not do it, then said I will give consideration. So it sounds like everything is lining up for the president's nominee to get a fair hearing. Yes, it sounds like we're in a bit of a less of a limbo over this today. We're talking Thursday than we were even two or three days ago. I hadn't heard the news about Mansion. That, that's very, very interesting. Um, uh, it's funny. Uh, I, I do a lot of radio shows, of course, especially this week with my book, Supreme Disorder, coming out. And uh, a couple of times I broke the news to the host about the latest development with Romney or Borkowski or what, or what have you. Um, so, yeah, it looks, it looks very clearly like there will be a vote, whether that's before the uh, election uh, or not. And um, uh, that's right. Unless the Democrats have a very uh, big Senate majority, then they simply might have, even if they win the Senate, they might not have the votes to get rid of the filibuster and and, and pack the court, regardless of what, what Mitch McConnell does now. We are talking with Lee Shapiro. You just heard him mention the name of the book. Again, it is Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Um, speak, Ilya, to, to uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was an iconic presence on the court for 27 years. Of course, we all know the movies and documentaries done about her. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that the left is freaking out over the potential nomination of Amy Coney Barrett as her replacement because Amy Coney Barrett is notoriously pro-life. Um, and uh, Ruth Ginsburg is, is noted as essentially a pro-choice justice. But you cover in the book the fact that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was initially 
uh, doubted by the pro-choice crowd because she said that Roe versus Wade was an overreach. So is there any consistency here in the way she is remembered and the way Amy Coney Barrett is being judged? Well, I, I would, I would, uh, I thought you were going to ask about the consistency between Ginsburg and four years ago Scalia, because uh, there were not movies about Scalia. You can do that uh, too. Yeah, that. <laughs> um, there are some parallels there, it's, and, and plus the human interest story with, with Scalia and, and Ginsburg being such close friends as well—a a throwback, uh, really. Um, but what's what's interesting is that um, this administration has been attacked for. Uh, the lack of, uh, of so-called diversity in its judicial appointments, and yet when uh, women and members of racial minorities are uh, more fiercely attacked uh, by the left because there's this idea that uh, all, all of these groups have to identify the same way and, and have the same perspective. That's why Clarence Thomas is perhaps the most hated member by the left uh, uh, of the Supreme Court um, because he's not uh, doesn't express the views that, that the the left progressives think that, that, that black people should about uh, about constitutional interpretation. The same thing is, is happening with Amy Coney Barrett, certainly. Uh, but you mentioned correctly the, the vignette about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Six months before President Clinton nominated her in 1993, she gave a speech at NYU uh, saying that uh, Roe v. Wade was an overreach and uh, prolonged or really created the the unending uh, controversy in our in our legal affairs, in our politics, uh, over abortion, uh, and the Supreme Court could have done things differently. Uh, and that's why during her uh, hearings, uh, there were doubts by uh, various uh, abortion rights pro-choice organizations, which in retrospect uh, looks uh, ridiculous and amazing. Uh, but that indeed was the case, simply because Ginsburg was uh, uh, being honest about uh, legal analysis. I mean, there's very few people who, regardless of what their position, policy position is on abortion, that think that Roe v. Wade is a landmark of, uh, of legal interpretation. Uh, and same with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the governing legal standard. I mean, Roe established the right, but in terms of the, the undue burden standard and, and what lawyers or, or judges are supposed to apply now, it's the 1992 case, which was co-authored by Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Bay O'Connor, and uh, David Souter. Um, you know these sorts of things. Uh, people uh, like them if they're if they're pro-choice, but it's not like this is a um, uh, a landmark of uh, of close legal reasoning or, or what have you. Ilya Shapiro is our guest, author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Uh, Ilya, I want to ask you about packing the court specifically as one of the retaliatory uh, measures that the Democrats are threatening. You know, they said literally everything is on the table from impeachment of Trump or Barr before the election in order to stall this thing, and that if it does go through, that after the fact, they are going to win the Senate, they're going to pack the court. It's been tried. Uh, several times in our history, and it never has... Po- in fact, we talked about Manchin a few moments ago. Joe Manchin specifically said this is why he would not vote to do such a thing. He said it's not going to work anyway. He said if you have 11 or 13, it's going to flip the other way no matter who comes into power. Why would you go down that path? Uh, so he said he is not going to vote for such a thing. Do you think that threat is real? And what do you think in general, Ilya, about the idea of retaliating against you know, Donald Trump for doing his constitutional duty and naming a replacement to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Mitch McConnell for doing what is historically, as we uh, outlined earlier, uh, the, you know, the appropriate thing to do? Well, it's not a duty, it's the power. Uh, certainly the president, uh, in, in election years, all 29 times there's been a vacancy, and we're about to see the, the 30th. 
um, there's been a nomination. Uh, and, and as I said, and as we went through that the Senate is just a matter of, uh, of who controls, uh, who controls the, the ballot. Poor packing, I mean, look, uh, two wrongs don't make a right. So if you consider what, um, McConnell is doing now to be, what the Republicans are doing to be wrong, uh, you don't somehow remedy that by further breaking norms or doing something that otherwise is, uh, is inappropriate. Uh, court packing or expanding the number, size of the court is constitutional. It just takes a simple act of Congress. You don't need a constitutional amendment or anything like that. Um, but there's a reason why Joe Manchin and, by the way, Joe Biden during the campaign trial, now he's sort of hedging, but on the, during the primaries he was against it. And uh, another person who was against it was the other finalist for the Democratic nomination, Bernie Sanders, possibly the only thing on which I agree with, with, with Sanders. He was asked, you know, what do you think about it? He's like, well, no, because uh, then the Republicans take power. They add more justices, and I'm not going to do the accident, but in 50 years we're going to have 87 justices on the court, and that, that's no good. Um, historically, court packing has uh, definitely not been seen as, le- as legitimate, and not just the FDR example in 1937. That was hugely unpopular, and even though FDR had been reelected massively, uh, the Democrats lost 80 seats in the House and, and eight in the Senate in the following midterms because of this uh, court packing scheme. But even before then, uh, a lot of political shenanigans involved in packing the courts, going all the way to the the Midnight Judges Act, uh, when John Adams had lost his re-election bid to Thomas Jefferson and, and used the Federalist Congress to ram through these, these extrajudicial appointments, tried to remove a seat from the Supreme Court so Jefferson wouldn't have as many nominations, uh, and that was ultimately reversed and uh, as seen as uh, you know, not a good precedent. Although, there's one interesting thing from that episode. While a lame duck, after having lost that bid for re-election, John Adams nominated, and the Senate confirmed John Marshall to be Chief Justice, one of the great uh, you know, heroes in our uh, legal and indeed overall uh, American history. So there's really very little new under the sun. You can find all sorts of quirks uh, in our history, but it's, it's ultimately just comes down to uh, a political battle. Yeah, very, very well said. And, and the last thing before you run, Ilya Shapiro, and I appreciate your time. Um, do you think that we have to get this done by November 3rd? President Trump said yesterday, look, it's probably going to be a t- contested election no matter who wins. With mail-in voting coming in late, we have states saying we'll take them no matter what the postmark says if we can't make it out. You know, there's going to be challenges here. And, you know, it happened in 2000, and it's probably going to happen again. We need a Supreme Court decision to end the presidential election and a bunch of recounts, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to have nine, right? Well, to be clear, it's not going to be a constitutional crisis if the Supreme Court deadlocks four to four. That just means the lower court opinion stands. So if this is coming out of, say, Pennsylvania, then the Third Circuit, there'll be a ruling, and that will be uh, what governs that state's uh, electoral vote. Whether by the loser that will be seen as less legitimate than losing five to four in the Supreme Court, I don't know. It's, it's, it's anybody's guess. So I think it's, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be just done by November 3rd. I don't know. You can argue either way. Um, will it be better to uh, have that nomination dangling to remind people what's at stake? Uh, will it be better to see whether the, whether the Republicans hold the Senate and therefore that confirmation might be seen as more legitimate by Democrats uh, or swing voters? I, you know, I don't know. You could, you could game it out in, in various ways, but that's... Um, you know, we, we can all have a parlor game and, and, and just yeah. that. I don't think it's, it's clear politically. 
Follow Ilya Shapiro's work. Uh, he is the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and he is also the author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court, available right now. Make sure you pick that up. Uh, again, one of the foremost experts on the Supreme Court right now, Ilya Shapiro. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. You got it. 10.53, final segment coming up. Okay, 1056. Thanks again uh, for joining us. And uh, wow, three tremendous guests today. Uh, Sergeant Dimitri Penny from Dallas analyzing the riots and the case of Breonna Taylor in Louisville. We had Dr. Everett Piper talking also about that case and more, uh, especially about uh, the 1776 Commission and the 1619 Project. They are very, very important issues. And then, of course, we just finished up with Ilya Shapiro on the Ruth Bader Ginsburg replacement and uh, what's going to happen over the course of the next 40 days. Let me get a call in here. We have not done calls today because we've been so busy with our guests, but Rich in Lakewood is waiting, so we've got him on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Rich. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. Uh, yes, I had uh, a brief comment. Uh, first, on the, uh, the Catholic uh, universities uh, teaching that critical race theory, it's it's it just it blows my mind so much that I, I just makes me think that it's what's going on right now is is it's coming down to good versus evil. I mean, it's just I can't understand that that happening to our uh, Catholic institutions. Uh, second thing I wanted to say was, uh, you know, this uh, the information coming out from the CDC, you know, about the, the COVID uh, numbers. And I've been following the, the numbers uh, from a variety of sources all along. And uh, it's like the mainstream media is about a month behind uh, the sources that I'm getting these same kinds of numbers from. And uh, I just think it's, it's uh, the, the masks are just a horrible thing, it's just ruining children's lives. It's, it, that's my main concern is about children. And uh, that's about it. Did you, Rich, thanks for the call. Um, I'll ask you and everybody else at the same time. Did you see the viral video that's going around speaking of the masks right now from Logan, Ohio? This uh, came around yesterday. Uh, quickly, Jack Windsor at uh, the Ohio Star uh, posted the video, as did others. It's a football mom. It what appears to be a day game, so it looks like you know a JV thing because it's bright sun, uh, sunshine. In a very, very non-crowded football stands at a stadium, shows her being arrested and tased by a police officer. Now, thank goodness that the races are what they were. The officer was African American, and the person being arrested was a white woman. Otherwise, there would have been burning in the streets all over the city, the state of Ohio, last night. But. Uh, at any rate, she was arrested and tased for not wearing a mask. It's all on video. Now, what the circumstances are, we'll find out in the coming days. But it's terrible, and it's on my Facebook page if you're interested in looking. This is how bad it is. And I hope she ends up suing Mike DeWine and, uh, and owning part of his governorship. All right, that's all the time we've got. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you being a part of it. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Free For All Friday. Be safe.